Welcome to the Discovering Our Scars podcast, where we have honest conversations about things that make us different. I'm Steph. And I'm Beth. I've been in recovery for 13 plus years and recently wrote a book, Discovering My Scars, about my mental health struggles, experiences, and faith. I'm a lawyer turned pastor who is all about self-awareness and emotional health because I know what it's like to have neither of those things. Beth and I have been friends for six years, have gone through a recovery program together, and when I wanted to start a podcast, she was the only name that came to mind as my co-host. I didn't hesitate to say yes, because I've learned a lot from honest conversations with Steph over the years. We value honest conversations, and we think you will too. That's why we do this, and why we want you to be part of what we're discussing today, which is bum, 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 <laughs> Steph's trip to the mental hospital. You ready to talk about this? I'm ready. Okay. I'm ready. All right. So I think that we shouldn't delay. We should just get right into it. There was a time when you found yourself in a mental hospital, right? Correct. And that was a surprise to you? Yes. <laughs> okay. So tell us about it. You were living at the in Orlando. Mm -hmm. You were a student at the University of Central Florida. And what happened? So I had been previously for uh, about two years before I had been dealing with my unexplainable emotions and the things I couldn't control in my life. I was dealing with those by using non-suicidal self-injury and I would use scissors to cut the left inside of my arm. Not for the purposes of trying to end your life, which some people might think of when they think of cutting, but that wasn't the purpose of it at all. It had a completely different purpose, which is why you later came to know that that is called non-suicidal self-injury, right? Yeah, it actually recently has become, um, that's the term that's in the official diagnostic that psychologists use. Um, but before it was just called self-injury or self-harm, and um, which is still different from cutting, which is um, typically associated with someone that's trying to commit suicide in some way. So at some point in your in your personal journey, you took this on as a way to cope with life, to cope with feelings. Yeah. And it was something at the time I didn't understand why, but it was just something my brain said, you have emotions that you can't understand and you feel bad all inside yourself. And there was no, nothing I could see that like when you break your arm and it hurts. Okay. It's easy to say my arm is broken. It hurts. I can understand that. But my whole body hurt and I didn't understand why. And I d couldn't say my leg hurts because there was nothing wrong with it. And my body said, you need something to represent this pain. And that's when my brain told me to injure myself. And I usually use scissors on my left arm. And so when I started this, I would punch a punching bag in my bedroom for about 20 minutes. And then I would uh, use non-suicidal self-injury to completely just kind of... Um, feel good for, feel relief, not necessarily good, but feel a little bit of that emotional relief because I could say, okay, it hurts there and I can see it. And that would calm and satisfy me for, for a tiny bit. So this was something that kind of went on and went on. And but it's not something that, that anyone who was close to you knew was happening. There was a time when this was just a secret that you, yeah. you carry. Yeah. I was living with my parents. I was going to um, community college here in Tallahassee and no one knew. I didn't tell it with any, didn't tell anybody about it. It was a really big secret that I didn't want people to know because I was, well, it wasn't for people to know. It was something personal. It was something I was dealing with. I wasn't necessarily scared that something, you know, that I'd be sent away or anything like that. I just was, it wasn't for other people to know. And so they didn't know. But when I was about to go to, to university in Orlando, I realized I couldn't leave with my secret world of, of self-injury still happening. 
And so I got up the courage to tell my mom. I knew she would be supportive. I knew she would care. I have a good relationship with my mom and I knew she would like do everything she could. It just took a lot for me to sit down and admit, mom, I had this problem and I've been hiding it from you and I need help. Uh, but I did just that one day after church, uh, we were sitting in the parking lot of, um, of a restaurant that we'd go pretty much every Sunday and they weren't open yet. So we were just sitting there waiting and it was hot in the car cause it's Florida in the summertime. And I finally got courage and I said, mom, I have something I need to tell you. And I told her and right away she said, we'll get you help. We'll go to your doctor this week. We'll get you counseling. We'll make it happen. Did your mom know that you were dealing with depression? I don't think she did. I actually would love to have her on the podcast so we could ask her these kind of questions so she can tell us for herself. Yeah, we should. Um, But I don't believe she knew because, you know, when we talk about now, she's like she had she had no idea that all this was going on. She herself actually struggles with depression. And that's something that is um, in our family. And so that was part of why I was a little not scared to tell her, but why it was hard to tell her, because I knew that she struggled with, with depression and that I was struggling with it. I just didn't want her to think me having it was related to her having it. I, you know, I just was trying to, I didn't want to hurt my mom and I felt like this had the potential to do it. But I also knew that me getting help was the most important thing. She would want that for me as well. So I, and you were right because when you told her that day in, in the parking lot, she didn't hesitate to say, this is not, uh, this is not a character flaw. Mm -hmm. This is not something to be ashamed of. This is something that we need to work on. Yeah. We went to see my primary doctor that week and she prescribed um, a depression me- medicine. And then I went to see a psychologist and I had six sessions with my psychologist and it went really well. I had, I was able to talk and that's when I first learned that crying was okay and <laughs> that I need to stop working so hard at stop not crying because um, it's a way of just cleansing and getting, getting that stuff out there. So before I went to college, I had that counseling. I was on depression medication and I felt ready to go to college. And uh, I did. I went to UCF, University of Central Florida. I had three random roommates assigned. We, I had a really nice dorm. I got to say it was really nice. It was apartment style. It was brand new. And I had my own bedroom and my bathroom, but we had a shared common room. Uh, the three roommates that I had, we were all around the same age. We were actually all had come from community college into UCF. So we were all kind of in the same like life space, but they were all very different for me, which was good and bad. Uh, good because I got to learn like new things about people, but bad because they didn't respect me like, well, one specific roommate didn't respect me like I had respect at my house. And when I was growing up, I'd never lived with anybody but my parents and, and brother before. So that was something uh, new and different for me. And I didn't have calm and peace and security in my in my dorm like I did at my house. My I had a roommate that d- didn't respect me and would eat my food when when I asked her continuously not to and had, you know, roommate meetings about the importance of respecting each other's property. In college, my goal was to eat really healthy. I didn't want to gain that freshman 15. And I wanted to really be healthy because I had struggled with being overweight as a child. So I wanted to be healthy. And so I had planned out my meals. I had certainly, you know, this is my turkey for my Monday meal, you know, a little crazy, but that's what, um, what I had been doing. And I was feeling really good about, um, my health, my food choices. And one day my roommate again, ate my food and I was, let me me get you to pause right there because, um, I think when people hear that, oh, my roommate ate my food, they might think, well, this is just like a normal college roommate thing that happens. And, you know, gosh, Steph, why weren't you just better at sharing? But it really wasn't about that at all, right? 
it's not as if it's not as if she came to you and said, I love the way that you're organizing your food. I can see that you're really striving to be healthy. I would like to join in that process. It was more like she was derailing your attempts to keep yourself healthy. Yeah. And it was for me, I had spent a lot of time scheduling everything out and getting everything in the proper place. And, you know, I've classed it this time, so I'm going to eat it this time. So yeah, it was, it was derailing the the process I had put in place. And we also had talked about like getting shared food and what that would look like. And she said, Oh no, we don't need to do that. So, I mean, we had had countless conversations about this. So it wasn't something that was new or new or different for any of us. We had been having conversations about this. So, so one day I had uh, just got back from a sortie event and I hadn't eaten all day, which is not good for me. I, I need to eat my regular meals. It was about um, 3.30, 3.30 in the afternoon. And I was running home because I needed food. So I went to get my, my turkey for my sandwich and it wasn't there. No turkey was left. I was really furious. I was furious because I was hungry. I was furious because we had had this conversation countless times And so I called my uh, resident advisor for the hall to come mediate with us again. She came, sat down with my roommate, and we were having a conversation, and she just wasn't responding. She wasn't respectful, and it was super frustrating. I was just at the end of my, this is over with, and I, I had unexplainable emotions that I needed something, needed to do something with them, and I went to my dorm room, closed the door, and I um, used non-suicidal self-injury again on my left arm. Did you did you punch your punching bag first? That's the thing. I didn't bring that with me to college. So I took the anger that I would have taken out on a punching bag. I took that out on myself. And so this time, my injury was way, way bigger and way deeper than it ever had been before. I After I got through... I think there's about seven slashes after I got through to the seventh one, my arm was just red, it was covered in red. And I panicked and I yelled for the roommate that I did get along with Megan. And, um, she came in and I had already told her some of my struggles. So she knew exactly when she saw what had happened and she called 911 and long story, but, uh, paramedics came, they wrapped my arm, said, said my arm was fine. <laughs> and, um, long story that, is, <laughs> that, that you, um, that you do get into more detail in the mm-hmm. book that's going to come out. So we don't exactly. want people to think that this is information that isn't being shared. It's just, yes, every detail is in my book. I don't want to um, make this podcast too long, right. but uh, all that detail is there. Uh, so the paramedics came, wrapped my arm. They didn't give you stitches or anything. They Mm-mm. just wrapped it, wrapped and, it with like gauze or something. Right. And then there was a, a resource officer, a police officer mm-hmm. there. And what did he, how did he react? So he was he was kind of fresh and new to his position um, at UCF. And I learned this later, but he had um, had a little bit of training on what to do if someone presents with um, my kind of issues, um, meaning in his mind, it was mental illness of some sort. And so he was instructed to take me to a place uh, called Sensor Receiving Center. And from there, he didn't know what would happen, but that's what he was instructed to do. So he asked me uh, when he came to the dorm room, he said, can I take you to a place that will help. And that's all he asked me. I was sitting on the floor, my arm wrapped in gauze. I'm looking around like, where am I? What's happening? Is this real life? And I said, okay, because I thought he meant he would take me to the ER to get my arm taken care of more because I was kind of thinking like my arm really hurts and there's only gauze on it, but okay. Um, So I didn't know. I didn't know what any of that entailed. And but do you think even in, in reflecting on it, do you think that he really did have your best interests at heart? Like he really did want you to get help? Or do you feel like you were in the, in a system somehow? 
I feel like he didn't know what to do and he had very little training. Um, and I actually have talked, I talked to him years later. And so this is also my thinking is coming from what he's told me. He had very little training on what to do in this kind of situation. And this is what he was told to do. So this is what he did. I don't know that he would have had any other option really. Like, I don't know what I would have rather him have done, but um, I do know I would have wished he had said, I'm going to take you to a mental hospital. Is that okay? You know, use those words instead of help, help, because that was misleading. And if I had, I don't know what I would have said if he said mental hospital, I, but I would have at least been in a different mindset and would have had more context to where I was. But technically where he did take me was called sensory receiving center, which wasn't actually a mental hospital. Although I never, I honestly didn't know that until I got out. Like I didn't know that that's, that I was in a, it's basically a holding facility for anyone in central Florida that presents with a mental health issue is where they take them and they just keep them in this holding space until they have a place to transfer them to. And I was transferred to a mental hospital from there. Is it a holding place or is there some level of assessment that happens? So they kind of, and I know that you're relying on memories Remember, you're relying on memories from a time when you weren't emotionally healthy. And so it, it may be fuzzy. You may, you may not remember. But. Actually, like when you ask me questions and when I'm like telling the story, I'm actually like, I can see it in my mind. I can see when you say assessment, I can see the little room they took me to and they asked me five questions and they didn't let me see a actual psychologist. They had a, a college student asking me questions and no one ever asked if I was trying to commit suicide. No one ever asked if I was suicidal um, the questions were very vague and I didn't give, be able to give a lot of detail. And it was very strange to me because I never knew what was going on during the whole time. Now reflecting back, I can, you know, see the series of events, but, um, and it kind of makes sense at the time it was traumatizing and it was, um, terrifying. And I felt like my rights and dignity were being taken from me because, um, I, I mean, I was being treated like you would treat a child, maybe worse, like, you know, just taking them around to places because you're the parent and this is what you do. Um, I wasn't being told anything about my life, what was happening when I was getting out. I was barely allowed to make phone calls. Um, and even when I was allowed to make phone calls, I didn't know anyone's phone number because we all have cell phones, but they took that from me. So right. I couldn't actually call anybody. Um, I've, I've heard you describe your time in the CRC as time without time. Yeah, for sure. The biggest thing, so I was taken to, yeah, when I was taken to CRC, Central Receiving Center, um, I was there. And the first thing they did is take all my belongings um, away. And then they um, had me put on paper scrubs. And then eventually they took me to a nurse assessment. And the nurse looked at my arm and said, this looks like raw hamburger meat. We can't do anything for you here. You have to go to the ER. That was the next thing that was frustrating to me is that I... Yeah, your arm didn't get worse between being in the dorm room and being brought to the CRC. It was an assessment that the paramedics could have made mm -hmm. hours before any of this. It got worse in the sense that it was just dried and fresh blood and it was really right. gross. Right, but it didn't. the cuts didn't get deeper. The no. need for stitches didn't change yeah. in some way. Yeah, so that was frustrating. I waited and waited and they brought a mini bus to pick me up to go to the emergency room. And um, I was in the emergency room for a couple hours and they did stitches there. And then many hours later, I was sent back to Central Receiving Center. And again, 
I wasn't being told what central receiving. I thought the central receiving center was a mental hospital, but all we were doing was sitting in a room. There's about 30 or 40 of us sitting in a room and there was a TV on with soap operas and we were just sitting in a room. That's it. And this was, this was hours. I mean, this was a whole day. I was sitting in this room and, um, I feel like I've seen that in movies, Yeah, <laughs> you know, of, of these, um, open rooms with people wearing clothes that obviously aren't theirs. There's some sort of scrub or uniform and that there's a TV on as if just to mm-hmm. numb everything out. And, and it's that, that's the overall feeling is just numb. Yeah. Well, think of the worst doctor's waiting room you've ever been in. You know, just in general, doctor's waiting rooms are just kind of depressing. It's just kind of like, I'm just waiting to see a doctor. Think of the worst you sat in and then double that. And that's where I was. I mean, that's what it was like. It was just like that horrible medical feel and medical smell. And just it was that's what it was. And there was probably too many of us in that room and all with varying levels of um, of issues you could see or not see. A lot of them you could see, you know people that were talking to people that weren't there, people that were, you know, just staring at the walls, staring at other people. It it was, it was scary. I was 20 years old. I had never experienced anything like that. I'd never gone to a place. I'd never even been to a hospital. Like I'd never had a broken bone, never had stitches, never had anything, never even had teeth pulled or anything. I have good teeth. So nothing, (laughs) nothing medical ever. And so this was the first time and it was jarring and it was scary. And I, and so after I was in the central receiving center for over, over 24 hours, um, I got word that I was being transferred to, um, the Florida hospital psychiatric treatment center. I believe it had a long title, but the psychiatric it, intensive treatment unit at the Florida hospital <laughs> center for behavioral health. Yes. Was that's that maybe. Yeah. It was a lot of work. It was a long title. <laughs> and I only know these things because I actually did get paperwork. Um, when I left, I got paperwork for all the places cause I had to sign countless papers. I had no choice. Uh, but I finally looked at the papers and I'm like, Oh, that's the name of this. That's the name of this. And that's where I learned about what CRC was is after the fact when I read the paperwork. But yeah, so I was transferred to a psychiatric unit, which is uh, also known as a mental hospital. And like I said, I was voluntarily to the central receiving center. So I was technically a voluntary admit to the hospital, which actually means that they can keep me longer as long as they want. Uh, if I had involuntarily gone, it would have called it would have been called Baker acted. And that's the Florida term for someone that's involuntarily admitted into a mental hospital. And if I was Baker acted, I would have uh, they would have had to assess me in 24 hours if I was danger to myself or others. And they would have had to release me. So that was also getting frustrating, more frustrating to me. The fact that I was held longer because I voluntarily came, although I didn't know what I was volunteering, voluntarily <laughs> agreeing yeah. to. It's hard to agree to something when you don't actually know what it is that you're agreeing to. It's hard to actually call that consent. And being given the, well, I don't think it is. I, yeah. I, I don't think that they had the consent to consent to send me there. If I had been Baker acted, it would have been 24 hours. <laughs> so when you got to the actual psych- psychiatric intensive treatment unit, how was that different from the CRC? It was actually nicer. Um, it was it was definitely it was like um it was probably more like a an ER like the look of it like it was a hospital it looked like a hospital but they were a little bit nicer there. I think they were nicer because they actually knew what they were doing. They were more medical professionals like had training and knew you know a little bit more of how to how to treat patients. Uh, it wasn't anything wonderful and special. I, I let me not paint the picture too much there, but. Um, 
I they did give me my clothes back, which was nice. So I didn't have to still be wearing the paper scrubs. Yeah, it was it was a mental hospital. There was patients sitting around um, just kind of staring off in the distance. Like I said, some talking to themselves, some you're kind of like, what are they here for? Um, I didn't have a lot of interaction with the patients because I was just so like I want I my goal was to get out because I didn't understand why I was there. And now looking back, I can see that they wrongly thought I was trying to commit suicide. To me, that wasn't even I was just so confused because that was not in my brain space. That was not why I use self-injury and I didn't use self-injury to, you know, try to end my life. I didn't use it to try to. Uh, bring attention to myself. I didn't want people to know about it. Um, I just, I used it because I had emotions that I, I had to, I had to say, this is where it hurts. And that's how I used it. So while you were at the mental hospital, when you're actually at the the second place, not the mm-hmm. CRC, but the, but the second the place, actual mental hospital. Yeah. Did they, um, they medicated you, didn't they? Yeah. So um, I was also in communication with my, my parents, most of my dad and my psychologist, um, Dr. Jill, um, that I had seen six sessions before I went to UCF. I was in communication with them and with my roommate that I really got along with Megan. Um, she was like, I'm ready to come get you. If you need me, come get you. I'm coming to get you. That was, that was a tough time because my dad is actually a psychologist himself. He works in a, um, in a facility similar to where I was. It's a way better facility, but he works somewhere similar to that. So he was encouraging me to follow the system, do what they say, take the drugs. And I was very frustrated because a, I know drugs can really zone you out and do things that I didn't want to happen to me. And, um, and B, I was like, I don't need to be here. I just, I need to get out. And he just told me to follow the system. And that was very frustrating to me because that didn't feel like an answer to me. That just felt like a, a non-answer. Um, so I had some really tough uh, conversations with my dad during that time. I used some very strong language, uh, which you'll see in the book when, um, when I was talking to him and had some some intensity that um, it affected our relationship for, for many years after and me trusting him again. Um, well, he was able to, he wanted to trust that system in a way that you couldn't trust the system as someone who was being held within it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was trusting the system and not trusting me is what it felt like. Um, I've talked to him many times since and um, I, I can see where he's coming from, but then at the end of the day, I just needed, I needed my dad to say, I'm so sorry you're there and I want to do everything I can to help you and to get you out. And that's really what I needed to hear. And I just wasn't getting that. I was getting my dad, the psychologist saying, do this, do that, do this. And, um, and meanwhile, maybe your dad is thinking if she refuses to take this medicine, she's going to get stuck in there even longer. And I know she wants to get out, right? Is yeah, that possible? exactly. Yeah, I think we were saying the same thing. He was just saying in a different way, in a way that I couldn't couldn't understand and couldn't, it wasn't useful to me at the time. Yeah. So eventually you were released from the mental hospital. And at that point you were completely mentally and emotionally healthy, right? Yeah. So I was, I was in the whole, in the whole system, I was there for over um, 70 hours. And uh, so the span of four days. Yeah, I mean, I worked so hard to just get out and I finally got out. I did have one person that actually advocated for me in the hospital was a social worker that was assigned to me and she really cared. And um, I wish I knew her name so I could say thank you because she really was somebody that I can still remember like a shiny shining person in there in like this hell that I was in. So I did eventually get out. My roommate Megan came and picked me up 
And that was that. I was was ashamed. I was embarrassed. I was scared. I um, and I tried so hard to make people think I was fine now and that I was okay. Although I never received any actual counseling or therapy or support that was actually of any value. I mean, we 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 played sports outside in the tiny little covered patio, but wasn't super helpful to my situation. So for the next five years, actually, I was so scared. I was scared to tell anybody about how I really felt. I was afraid to tell anyone that I still struggled with self-injury because I still was struggling with it because being in that hospital really didn't do anything to help me with those um, those feelings. And um, I want to pause you right there because I think that that is a really important takeaway for folks that you were in this situation where you were surrounded by people, by patients who needed help. Mm -hmm. You were in the place where someone like me as a complete outsider to the process would think that's where someone who needs help would need to be. But in fact, you left there without any additional understanding of why this was a coping mechanism for you. You left there without any additional tools that you could use instead of self-injury as a coping mechanism, right? You just, it was like time was up finally and they decided you were stable, and so they released you. Yeah, I think um, people think mental hospital, they think they have like a perception. Either some people might have a perception of, oh, yeah, anyone that has a mental illness needs to go to one and they'll get help. Or people will think, oh, mental mental hospitals are for crazy people and they just lock people up and, and drug them. Well, both perceptions are actually pretty accurate because they're all very different. Um, there's no like one size fits all there. They come in many different forms. Some are um, short term, which is where I was, where you wouldn't really even be there. I don't know how long you could be there, but, you know, a week or two, I don't think is the I would say is the max. Then there's some more long term hospitals where they would keep you for, you know, months on a time at a time uh, where I was with some place that is just trying to deal with the immediate situation and get you back to out in the world. It's really different in that sense from um, from a hospital hospital. So like I I had to have surgery in December. I went to the hospital for a short period of time. They performed the surgery. They patched me up. They sent me home. But the problem was fixed, right? The, the issue that took me to the hospital was resolved. In Steph's trip to the Bensel Hospital, that wasn't even a goal. I use self-injury for coping and that was, it's not a healthy coping mechanism. You would think that is possibly something they would have addressed, but that was not addressed. So let's fast forward a few years. And they don't have time in those kind of facilities to really do any of that. The only time they have is to give some drugs and be on your way. And that's typical of these, these types of facilities. And that's what's frustrating is that's not a facility that probably could have ever helped me truly get to where I need to be. I would have needed to be outpatient, which is outpatient treatment is when you see like a therapist, you know, on a Wednesday and you do your normal life during the rest of the week. Um, and inpatient is where I was. It was inpatient where you're in living in a facility. Yeah. And, and it, and we're not saying that that kind of approach is never right. Right. I mean, someone could be having, could be having like a psychotic break. Like there could, there could be mental illness conditions that that could be addressed in that way. Yes. But for someone dealing with non-suicidal self-injury as a mechanism for coping with life, that sort of short term, let's give you some additional medication, let's not do let's not do any talk therapy, let's not do any of those things. It didn't it didn't make a 
it didn't improve your overall situation, right? I don't think there's anything wrong with medication. I personally try to be off as many minutes as I can, and I am not, I'm no longer on any kind of medication. Um, but I'm a firm believer in medication um, paired with therapy. Both of those I think are key. Medication can be a great way to help um, deal with some short-term issues and to help you while you're in therapy. But I, I'm a firm believer in, in both. I definitely think just therapy is great too. Several years after this experience, you were still dealing with depression. Yeah. So depression has been an ongoing issue for me. And when I'm really depressed, the the self-injury is even worse as well. For the next five years after I got out of the hospital, I was scared to see medical professionals. I was scared I was going to be sent back to a mental hospital. I was scared I was going to be locked up for good. And I had all these irrational fears and thoughts that kept me from fully living and embracing life. And I'm I was a girl in my 20s. I was, you know, you know, 25, five years later, and I was just afraid every day. And I it could I could go to work and that was it. I worked at the Apple store in Orlando and I, and I loved it. But that was my whole world is that was all I could do was work and then crash at night because it was so much emotional work to put on happy, healthy human face, go to work. I finally, after five years, I realized I can't do this anymore. Like I have issues that I don't know what's going on or why they're there and I can't do it alone. So I took a month off from work and I went back to Tallahassee and I went to see Dr. Jill again. And in the, she had been your, she had been your psychologist before you left to go to move to Orlando, right? Exactly. Yep. So I made appointments with Dr. Jill and in our very first appointment, I was telling her the things that were just happening in my life and the things that were living in my head on a daily basis. And she said within the first 10, 20 minutes, she said, well, you have post-traumatic stress disorder. And I was like, what? And she said, yeah, you have post-traumatic stress disorder from the mental hospital. You have flashbacks at any given time uh, of being back in the hospital. You're afraid of uh, medical professionals. You're afraid to live life. You're afraid to do this. You're afraid to do that. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is where this all stems from. I didn't know exactly what my issues were. So these were these were new issues because I didn't have post-traumatic stress before I was at a mental hospital, but that's what I had PTSD from. So during that month, we worked on PTSD and I thought, oh, PTSD, that's a, that's a disease I've heard of. So there must be some cool treatment for it. So I was all excited. I was like, what's the treatment? What's the treatment, Dr. Jill? And she said, well, you're going to talk about it. What? Wait, huh? Right. You're going to talk about it and just talk about it. But, and she said, we could put you back on medication, but you have gotten off of it and you've been doing well off of it. And so I said, oh, okay. So you want me to talk about the things that just tears me up and kills me inside? You just want me to talk about it? Oh, okay. Okay. Didn't because look- it was sitting there waiting for you, waiting yeah. for you to actually. It was always right there. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't love the treatment plan, but I also, I understood. So I, um, I talked about it and she encouraged me to write letters to the people in the hospital that um, harmed me and forgive them and well, write mean letters to them, like really mean, nasty letters and then burn them up. Don't send those. Uh, But really be able to forgive those people, forgive myself and forgive the people involved. I was able to really work through that, that month off from work and, and deal with the PTSD. And I still, um, I still have flashbacks. PTSD is not just magically go away. It doesn't affect my life on a daily basis in the sense that 
I can't function in life. I mean, I wrote a book. Right. I do this podcast. I have a full-time no business. DIY business and I can definitely function um, way better, but I still have flashbacks. Actually, this week I had a flashback uh, and right after it happened, I was like, "Ooh, I can talk about it on the podcast. <laughs> Isn't that nerdy? <laughs> um, but so tell it. Well, tell us, because um, what I'm learning from you is that a flashback is different from a memory. Mm-hmm. So kind of explain that distinction to us. So for me, my flashbacks are actually when I'm taken back to to the hospital. That's a flashback for me. So this week I had a mole removed at my dermatologist and they they stuck a needle in it, which was not comfortable. And I think they put numbing agent with the needle, but um, it was just kind of like sticking that needle around. I was like, oh, that's uncomfortable. That's uncomfortable. Okay. And then it was over and I was like, okay, wow, that was hurt more than I thought, but okay. And then I was driving home after the appointment. And as I was driving, I was transported back to the um, emergency room when they stuck multiple needles in my arm to numb the area before they put 24 stitches in. And I was back there and I was feeling the pain and I was feeling the fear that I had at that time. And I was, I was there. It didn't last a super long time. And right when I came back to and saw where I was, I just had to remind myself, you're okay. You're safe. You're driving. It's going to be okay. You're not there anymore. You're here. It's okay. And and then it was over. And then I thought, oh, I'll share it on the podcast. So, so um, they are, they happen still randomly. I have no control over when they happen, but they don't debilitate me and I handle them as they come and then I move on. You learned that you or you were actually diagnosed with PTSD and that that relates to Steph's trip to the mental hospital. But that's actually completely separate from the non-suicidal self-injury, right? Correct. Yeah. So even after dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder, which is my new diagnostic, um, I still hadn't fully dealt with non-suicidal self-injury and why I coped with it. Um, so even, you know, this was six, six, seven years later, I still hadn't dealt with um, the true reasons why I uh, used non-suicidal self-injury. And I still used it for coping and I still felt shame for using it for coping. And I still, I didn't feel the same satisfaction that I did, you know, seven years prior. So there's definitely more to the story. Yes. And actually, uh, so my book, Discovering Our Scars, is the full story of me finally deciding, discovering why I dealt with NSSI. And there's there's a whole another layer to my story. But when I first wrote my book, I only wrote about the mental hospital because I thought, oh, that's a real intriguing story. And I had a whole book only about the mental hospital. And uh, I sent it to my publisher and they said, you know, I feel like there's more here. There's more to this story. Well, there is, but I thought that'd be a second book. <laughs> and they said, <laughs> I think it's part of the first. So so there's way more to the story. Uh, I don't know that we have time today to talk about it. So I think we'll hold yeah. off for uh, another episode. I think we, I think definitely think that we should save that for another episode. Yeah. We will get into every part of this incredible story. We will we will hear about how you turned to God in a really um, vulnerable way, mm-hmm. and we'll we'll hear what that revealed to you, and and more about that whole journey um, for you in, in terms of understanding why you dealt with things by using NSSI. Yeah. 
We want to thank you guys for joining us today. And we want to uh, let you know that we both actually have a newsletter that you can sign up for on our websites. Uh, We send out weekly newsletters and we'll have a link to the week's podcast. We'll also, uh, Beth writes some amazing blogs about God and church and all of the great stuff that we love and some personal stuff. So uh, you can sign up for her newsletter at bethdemi.com. And then my newsletter will have, um, I'm starting blog entries, so I can't say that they're brilliant because I've never actually be, wrote anything. Um, and, uh, I'll have the podcast and I'll have some updates on what's going on with me. So you can sign up for that at stephaniecostopolis.com and we'll have a link to both of those below. Yeah. Just check out the show notes so that you don't have to worry about how to spell all of that. <laughs> so we have a voicemail line and we want you to call in and answer a question. We're going to offer a question in each podcast episode, and then we want to actually receive your answers to that in this really um, modern, fancy way called voicemail. (laughs) (laughs) We want to hear from you. So you are welcome to call a voicemail on your phone. And the voicemail number is 850-270-3308. And the question we want you to answer this week is, what honest conversation would you like to hear Steph and Beth tackle? So Beth, uh, today we talked a lot about my trip to the mental hospital. Um, did you have any personal takeaways from today? My personal takeaway is that sometimes life feels out of control and that that actually can bring new understanding and new awareness with time and with courage. What's your takeaway? I know this is a story you know well, but what is your takeaway having shared it again today? Um, I think my takeaway is it's scary to be vulnerable and it's um and i i still have doubts in my head about sharing my truth and my full story but i feel like bigger things in me in place that is the reason i need to share and i am just taking this one step i can't look at episode 10 i have no idea what that's going to look like but we're on here on episode two and i um i can do I can do episode two. So um, thank you for letting me share. Thanks for being courageous. Thank you. Um, And we want to give you all a chance to um, answer some questions for yourself. So we have written some questions for reflection that relate to today's episode. And these are, um, you're welcome to answer these um, in your head on paper. We have a link on our website where you can download a a PDF that has them written on it. But this is just an opportunity for you to answer some questions. And if you don't feel... Uh, like you want to, then we will see you next episode. But Beth is going to read them and she'll leave a little bit of time between each each of the questions so you could pause the podcast if you're in your car or you want to be able to answer the questions right away to yourself. Uh, and then we'll see you next time. Questions for reflection. Think of a time when you felt misunderstood. Were you able to advocate for yourself? If not, why not? Have you ever felt emotionally locked up? When you're at your lowest, where do you turn? Do you see God as a safe place to turn? Why or why not? This has been the Discovering Our Scars podcast. Thanks for joining us.